0: All right, good morning. Open your Bible or navigate over to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 5 through 17 this morning. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 17. That's the text, the topic. The Apostle Paul compares putting on Christ to putting on clothing. The title of our message The Fashion of the Christ. Father, thank you for our time together in your word. As always, we want to see it in context, but also brought into the context of our individual lives and our corporate life as a church. We're trusting you to make application uh, by the still small voice of your spirit who is here to teach us. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Does anyone remember that Donald Trump has a line of clothing? I'm not talking about all the stuff that has his slogan, Make America Great, on it. He has a line of clothing, notably dress shirts and ties. You might remember that he was in the annual Christmas commercial for Macy's that promoted their various celebrity lines of merchandise. The one I pulled up on YouTube featured Martha Stewart, Usher, Sean Combs, Emeril Lagasse, Jessica Simpson, and Trump, all busy decorating a Macy's store for the holidays. Speaking of neckties, I prefer Jerry Garcia to Trump. It's not a political statement, it's a fashion statement. If you watch any award shows, you know that they are always asking each of the stars on the red carpet one question, who are you wearing? Typical answers are Versace, Armani, and Vera Wang. After reading our verses in Colossians, we will want to ask ourselves, who am I wearing? The Apostle Paul will use clothing as an illustration. In verses 9 and 10, he'll instruct us to put off the old man, and to put on the new man as if they were wardrobe choices we could make. We'll read first about putting off the old man line of clothing. We could call that the Adam line. Then we'll read about putting on the clothing of the new man. That's the Jesus line of clothing. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, make sure you are not wearing Adam. And number two, make sure you are wearing Jesus. So let's take a look at Adam's clothing in verses 5 through 11. Now, I've heard, I've been told, there is something online called the people of Walmart. It's a website of user-submitted photos of people ridiculously, hilariously, inappropriately dressed while shopping at their local superstore. It seems to only be a phenomenon that happens at Walmart. Those people made a wardrobe decision before they went out walking in the world. Sometimes you wonder what they were thinking. We make that decision as well. In our case, spiritually speaking, we decide who we're going to wear, whether it's Adam or Jesus. And so verse 5, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Your members which are on the earth... That's your unredeemed physical body. Paul is describing not just the physical body, but what he will call your old man in verse 9. We commonly refer to it as the flesh. You are born with a sin nature. After you're saved, there is something that resides in your unredeemed physical body that yearns to sin. That's why we read in Galatians 5.17, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Put to death is the word mortify. The best definition of the word in this context is to regard as impotent. And so Paul is reminding you that you can always regard the old man, your flesh, as powerless. It has no power over you unless you yield to it. It is your choice. It exists. It's relentless. It will never uh, willingly yield but you don't have to yield to it because it was put to death at the cross with Jesus Christ. One author put it like this, the will of the believer must respond negatively to the impulses of the old man to use the members of the human body for illicit purposes. And so as we've told you all the time, what God commands, God enables. And so when God says your old man is dead, you reckon that to be so and you can say no to sin and yes to God. Now, Paul listed some things in the wardrobe of your flesh, some things that uh, characterize the non-believer and should not characterize us. Fornication is a catch-all word for any sexual immorality. It would describe anything outside the boundaries God has set in his word for human sexuality, which is for one biological man and one biological woman to become one in a monogamous, heterosexual covenant of companionship called marriage. That's a mouthful, but I think it covers it. And so uh, that's fornication. is anything outside of that marriage covenant. Uncleanness is lust marked by entertaining improper sexual thoughts. Passion is the desire to use another person to satisfy your own lusts. While people tried to argue that things like prostitution and pornography are victimless crimes, God points out that the passion of the heart to use and abuse others is itself sinful. Evil desire is the physical craving that results from these things. Now, these sensual thoughts and traits are just as prevalent in the old man today as they ever were. I have to turn my phone off. Somebody just texted me and I left the ringer on. How about making fun of myself when my phone rings, right? (laughs) Not gonna do it, not gonna do it. All right, where are we? Someplace. These traits are just as prevalent, as I said, in the old man today as they ever were. Most advertising appeals to them. Those ad guys aren't dumb, and neither are the companies paying them billions of dollars to get our business. Covetousness is more than just wanting more. It's wanting what others have. It's labeled idolatry because ultimately it's a dissatisfaction with what God has given you. The more you desire what God has not given you, the more it crowds out your love for the Lord himself. Verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Uh, Not these things alone, they're symptoms of the disease, the underlying problem, which is sin. Wrath here in this verse isn't uncontrolled anger. It is God's measured response in dealing with sin. God told Adam and Eve that they would bring death upon themselves and their offspring if they chose badly, and God's wrath upon sin has been working through that problem for about 7,000 years. He had to address sin. He's, he, he has to deal with sin, but he has a plan that involves coming as a man, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and we see that unfold in the Bible. And so his wrath isn't some uncontrolled anger. God didn't come into the garden and say, Adam, where are you? I'm going to give you a count of three, and then after that, I'm going to give you something to cry about. It, it wasn't like that. God came seeking Adam. He... Uh, Even though Adam refused really to confess, kept blaming, blame shifting, God still revealed his plan to save lost mankind. So he has a wrath that is measured and will one day be finished. I want to go into that because in a minute we're going to see that wrath is a characteristic of the old man in a different way. The descendants of Adam, all of us are sons of disobedience and we earn the wages of sin, which is death. That means physical death followed by conscious, eternal torment, and hell separated from God. Verse 7, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. The Colossians had a personal testimony that included these behaviors. So do many of us. Testimonies can be effective tools, but generally we want to forget what we have been saved from and rejoice in what we've been saved to. We've turned to God from idols, and we want to press forward to the goal. Uh, testimony sometimes it almost sounds like people miss their sin they get so involved in talking about the sin that they used to commit everybody wants to embellish their testimony and be the you want to be the you know the guy who took the most drugs or the most alcohol or whatever Uh, testimonies are good like i said but what are you what has christ done in your life how has he changed you that is more valuable verse eight Now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Put off formally introduces us to this clothing illustration. Paul thinks you can put off these thoughts and traits as you would any filthy stained clothing and then replace them with Jesus. All these indicates anything that is characteristic of the old man and a few of the wardrobe choices follow. Anger is the inward attitude of wanting to lash out. Wrath is an outburst that acts upon anger. Malice is having ill will towards another person, wishing the worst for them. Blasphemy can be against man or God. It reveals itself against man as slander and gossip and backbiting. It includes any abusive speech towards another person. Filthy language encompasses foul speech, coarse or rude humor, profanity and obscenities. Our society doesn't have much of a filter on that anymore. It used to. Uh, You know, used to men didn't curse around women. Now women curse around men. Uh, It's just, you know, television, movies, whatever. We definitely are desensitized to language, uh, but we shouldn't fall into it. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. A lie is any misrepresentation of the truth or deception. You can lie by the tone of your voice, your gestures, the look on your face, all of these. Verse 9, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. When he said you have put off the old man and you have put on the new man, Paul is looking back to what was done for you at the cross of Jesus Christ. Your old man was crucified, now rendered impotent. You now have the new man, the new nature of God, and then you go on to walk in that. Salvation, sanctification, glorification, that's the three-step process. You're saved for eternity. As long as you're on the earth, you're being saved in the sense that you're being turned into the image of Jesus Christ more and more, sanctification. Ultimately, when you die or are raptured, you'll be glorified and that work will be complete. He who began a good work in you will complete it and uh, that's what he's referring to here. On a practical basis, you're renewed in knowledge that describes this process of daily progressive change called sanctification. The ultimate goal for you is to be transformed to the image of him who created him. God formed man in his image. That image was deformed at the fall when Adam and Eve sinned. Through salvation and sanctification, it's being renewed until ultimately we are glorified in heaven. In the meantime, look to Jesus for your standard. He is the epitome of what it means to be human, he is who you want to look like or who you want to wear. Verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, by barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Greeks is another word for Gentiles, and Jews referred, of course, to God's chosen nation, the Hebrew people. There are obviously still Gentiles and Jews, and God in the Bible actually keeps them distinct in terms of his prophetic plan. So what are we going to make of this and the comparisons that follow? Well, one way to look at this is a list of, uh, that promises equal access to all. Jesus is just as available to Gentiles as he is to Jews. Circumcised or uncircumcised would refer to religious distinctions. The Jews considered themselves the circumcision because it was their covenant with, from Abraham, and everybody else, all the Gentiles, were the uncircumcised. Whether they were physically circumcised or not, religiously they were the uncircumcision. And so this is a religious distinction. Jesus is the one way to God available to all. Uh, we, nonbelievers commonly have a distinction that uh, you know, Allah is God to the Muslim and Jesus is God to the West, and there are all these other gods, and, and, and that each of these religions is equal. And then they go so far as to say that a lot of these religions predate Christianity. They go back before the birth of Christ. And that's all ridiculous, as I've told you before. Jesus. Uh, was in the Garden of Eden when man sinned. He came and, and, and God uh, w- was promised that he would come and die for the sins of the world. And so we don't want to call it a religion, but if you want to say this to people, the first and true religion is the Garden of Eden religion of the sacrifice of Christ and his resurrection from the dead. Everything else is false. Everything else is a deception. So Christianity doesn't begin with Christ in the first century. It begins with Christ in the garden. And so, what Paul is saying here is that it doesn't matter your religion, uh, Jesus is the way to salvation to all. Barbarian and Scythian refers to cultures. While there are wide and sometimes wild cultural differences among the people groups of the earth, Jesus is the universal savior of them all. The gospel works anywhere. It, 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 you preach the gospel, and people are saved. Slave nor free relates broadly to overall social status. It may not be easy for a rich man to trust Jesus, but the Lord will save any who does, rich or poor. Christ is all and in all, no matter who you are or where you are, Jesus saves. Now, those of you who are older and can look back at pictures of yourselves from previous decades, do you really want to put on some of those outfits? How about the hairdos? Don't you love to look at yourself and laugh? You were hilarious back then. Can you say leisure suit? How many of you guys will admit that you had a leisure suit? Come on, there you go. White shoes, leisure suit. If you're too young to know what a leisure suit is, don't even Google it. I don't want you to disrespect us. (laughs) Paul is saying something like that here, only on a spiritual basis. Don't allow your flesh to dictate your wardrobe. You don't want people looking at you and saying, what are you wearing? That's something from the old man that is not characteristic. Put that off, and instead, make sure you're wearing Jesus. Mark Twain once said, "'Clothes make the man.'" Naked people have little or no influence on society. <laughs> you're to put off the Adam line, but you're not left naked. The Jesus line of clothes is now introduced, verse 12. "'Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved.'" We understand election to be the sovereign act of God in grace, whereby he chose in Christ for salvation salvation All those whom he foreknew would accept him. Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient to save any and all men. The Holy Spirit is in the world to apply his death on the cross to human hearts. As God's grace takes the initiative to free the human will, you can choose to receive or to reject God's gift of eternal life. Salvation is therefore all of God by grace through faith, not at all of any human works. Those who receive the gift are those God foreknew would accept him. He calls them the elect in him. They're also holy. It's the same word translated earlier in the letter as saints. It describes every Christian as permanently set apart to God as his unique possession. A Christian is thirdly beloved. It means that God has fixed his love upon you. God the Father loves you as much as he loves his own beloved son, Jesus Christ. So when my eyes open every day and I contemplate walking with the Lord, I ought to remember I am elect, holy, and beloved. I am saved, I am secure, and I can be certain that God loves me as much as he loves Jesus. And therefore, I'm gonna wanna put on the appropriate clothing to reveal who I am. I wanna wear that almost as a uniform so people can see that. So verse 12 Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Getting dressed for a daily walk with Jesus starts with putting on tender mercies. This is concern for the needs of others. It is putting others first. It is what Jesus did in eternity past when he determined to come to earth as a man to save us. Uh, and, And so again, Jesus is your example in all of these things. If you think, well... What's the definition of this? That's good to get the dictionary definition like we're doing this morning. But you can also get the Jesus definition as you see him acting and reacting in the Gospels when he was on the earth. And in this case, before that, before uh, creation, uh, when the Godhead had their plan of salvation, Jesus said, I will go. I will become a man. I will be the God-man for eternity and die for the sins of the world. The next term is kindness. That's putting tender mercy into action. At some point, compassion must reveal itself in actual help to those in need. This is always tricky among Christians. We want to help people, but we want to bring the gospel at the same time. I applaud rescue missions. They seem to have figured out how to do this in a really neat way. I love ministries like Operation Christmas Child because again, they bring practical, physical help to people, but they also bring the gospel in a big way. And so whatever we get involved in, uh, we, we want to bring the gospel. And um, uh, uh, if you watch the Bush funeral, uh, which I recommend you do on YouTube, it was really it filled with a lot of really neat uh, Christian references and hope in the, uh, in the eternal. There's a, a quote that I, I've heard before, and, and I understand it, I'm not against it totally, but it's that quote you've heard, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words it is necessary to use words. Uh, you can preach the gospel through your actions to the point where people see there's something different about you, but then they need to know the name of your savior and that is Jesus Christ. And so we need to always strike that balance. Right now I think a lot of the church at large has swung over to the benevolent side of things, to like things like social justice and, and all that, where it's less about the gospel. In fact, there might not even be a gospel. You're just hoping that people will figure out that you love them and they will, you know, gravitate to Jesus. So uh, it's not easy. I'm not condemning anybody, but it's something that we we always want to preach the gospel when we're giving practical help. But we can't not give practical help at the same time. While you're looking upon others with tender mercies and helping them with kindness, you're to be thinking of yourself with humility. The expression, but for grace, there go I, I think perfectly captures the uh, concept of true biblical humility. If you uh, can't look at a person who is doing something and say, that could be me, uh, if there's something you think you could never do, then you're not in touch with the power of the old sin nature and what it's capable of. If you're going to serve others, you're going to be treated like a servant. You're going to get messy. Treated like a servant, you tend to either passively withdraw or you aggressively attack. Meekness rejects those fleshly responses and keeps you on task. It's always, uh, what's the word? I can't think of the proper word right now, but it's always surprising, let's say, to Christians, especially young Christians, when you start serving either in the church or just serving other Christians and something goes wrong. You get treated poorly or badly or overlooked or persecuted or whatever you would call it. And and when that happens, uh, our flesh wants to either withdraw and say, I don't want to have anything more to do with the church or with serving. I don't need to be treated like that. Or we attack. We go on the attack. We try and find little groups of people that agree with us and we go after the the person. One thing I think that would help, and it's not talked about very often, The early church, which we normally emulate, read any articles uh, in magazines or in commentaries, and everybody loves the early church, the first century church, the apostolic church, and extols its virtues, and there are many to extol. But if you read the letters to the churches, and especially Jesus' seven letters to the churches, what do you find? Those churches were full of problems and problem people. Serious problems. In Corinth, they were suing one another in open court and making a mockery of the uh, testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, Timothy was serving in Ephesus, and people were despising his youth and refusing to accept his anointing. In Philippi, there were two ladies whose name made it into the Bible, Euodius and Syntyche, who couldn't get along. How would you like that? How would you like to be those? I'm pretty sure they've changed their names in heaven. I mean, you want to make the Bible, maybe, but not like that. And so you need to know that working with other people is inherently bad. It's difficult. There's going to be problems, big problems like there were in the early church. Ananias and Sapphira lied and died. The Holy Spirit struck them dead. So that's problematic. Uh, And so don't be surprised if you want to be a servant when you're actually treated like a servant. The next thing, long-suffering, that's putting up with people who try your patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. Bearing with one another is the practical side of long-suffering. You don't just suffer long, shaking your head, talking under your breath. No, you actually bear with them and you encourage them. Paul was a realist. He understood the difficulties people presented he knew there, there would be differences between Christians and offenses. The word complaint means something worthy of blame. It's a real offense. Try not to get offended so easily, I think, is, is you know implicit in this. Some of us are just too thin-skinned. The slightest thing offends us. Get over that. Let's toughen up a little bit. But there are real offenses, things that are worthy of blame. So what you should do? You should forgive one another if anyone has a complaint against another. If you're offended or wrong, the solution is not retaliation. It is not slander. It is not separation. It is to seek biblical forgiveness. And that begins by keeping the matter as private as possible, going to the offender with the desire to be reconciled for the Lord's sake. If you can't work it out, then you should involve the local church. But by the time it comes to the church leaders, we shouldn't know anything about it it should have been kept private and quiet. And if you can't work it out, then say, hey, we want to submit this to you for arbitration. Because the idea isn't to be a winner or a loser. The idea is to be reconciled. And so uh, there is a process that we call it church discipline, but it's really a process of church re- restoration and reconciliation. Christ forgave you. You and I have been forgiven much by God we can forgive comparatively little that is done against us. One final wardrobe item that holds everything together and in place, verse 14. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Literally, Paul said, put on the love. It's the love that is uniquely possible because it is implanted in you by God. It is God's love through you to others. In Paul's day, the men wore what was called a girdle, but we would simply call it a belt think of love as a belt and in this case as a utility belt it can reach i can reach into it for any of the characteristics listed whenever i need them and tons of other characteristics that are found as i explore god's word so whatever resource i need It's as if I have a bat utility belt on and can just reach into it and grab that. I need love, I need meekness, I need kindness, I need tender mercies, I need some long-suffering right now. I don't need to yield to the impotent old man. I can put on the powerful new man in the power of Christ's resurrection. Love is the bond of perfection. It binds us together on the earth as we are being perfected by God for heaven. Verse 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. Remember, we're looking at all this as if peace were something you would wear that could be seen by others. How can I wear the peace of God in such turbulence and turmoil and trial? Well, the word rule, that's translated umpire. What does an umpire do? Among other things, he makes the call. He makes the call. You're out walking in the world. You find yourself in some difficulty, some trial, some suffering. Your circumstances are turbulent, to say the least. You can react with agitation or fear or stress or worry or any of a number of fleshly traits, or you can appeal to the umpire to make the call. His call might be to end your suffering, and that's the call I would always make for myself. I would be a terrible umpire because I would prefer myself and say, I don't want this suffering. I don't want any of you to have any suffering. My call is for all of us to smooth sail into heaven. But more often than not, and you know this to be true, God's call is to give you grace to endure your suffering because he finds a purpose in it. Either way, it's his call, and therefore I can be at peace So much of getting through a trial is coming to the moment that you realize that this was God's call. There's no getting out of it. There's no getting away from it. This was God's call. I don't like it. I wish he had made another call, but this was his call, and therefore I can be at peace because I trust him. Why? Because I'm elect, and I'm holy, and I'm beloved. And those things don't change no matter what's going on in my life. My personal peace or lack of it affects everyone else. If I'm stressed and worried and annoyed and fearful, then the whole body of Christ I'm a part of feels those effects. So I need to let peace rule in my heart. I have to allow it to have that work. Verse 15 goes on and says, And be thankful. It literally reads, And thankful continually become. Sounds like thankfulness is something to be discovered when everything in me doesn't see a reason to be. How do I do that? Well, one way, and you can ask anyone who suffered great loss, be heavenly-minded. Look forward to what awaits you. Sometimes uh, it, we need to stop thinking that that's a way of escape or, or some kind of a, you know, a false hope. These guys in the Bible, and for centuries after that until very recently, everybody knew that our hope was in the afterlife. Uh, before there was modern medicine... People didn't live very long, uh, and you know, they, didn't, they didn't have the hope of extended life. They had the hope of heaven. They knew where they were headed. And, and so this is the key to it. We need to recapture a desire and a longing to be in our heavenly home. Paul the Apostle, he had a desire to be at home with Christ. He said that was great gain. And so that is how you do it. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, we immediately think of the word of Christ as the Bible. Nothing wrong with that. But the Colossians, as I've reminded you a couple of times, they they had no Bible other than some uh, limited access to the Old Testament and whatever letters from the apostles that were being circulated. So this is more of a reminder of what God had already accomplished in them through the gospel. However much or little word they had, they should let it dwell in them. I think we can put it this way. It's one thing for a believer to be in the word. Paul was talking about the word being in you, making a difference, such as in your spiritual wardrobe choices. And so while we all want to know God's word more and better and more completely, and we would never say otherwise, Whatever already you know is in you, that needs to dwell in you. It needs to make a difference in you. How many times have you said of a person, oh, that guy knows the Bible backwards and forward, but they're not even a Christian. So they probably don't really know the Bible, but they know some things about the Bible, but they don't know the God of the Bible. And so Paul is saying, whatever you know, it's sufficient for you until God brings you more knowledge. And so let that dwell in you and meditate on that. I've said before, one of the first things I heard when I was a young Christian, uh, the, I think it was Paul Havsgaard at Calvary Riverside, he said, if, only, if you only know John 3.16 and you're saved, it was enough to save you, then it's enough for you to preach the gospel to somebody else. Well, what if they have other questions? Who cares if they have other questions? It doesn't change John 3.16. We can answer their other questions, but they still need John 3.16. And so you get what I'm saying. So he's not talking about pouring over the scriptures here, although that's a good thing to do. He's talking about the word making a difference in your life. The word richly describes a treasure to be highly prized and appreciated. Elsewhere, we read that God has put the treasure of the gospel in our frail earthen vessels. In all wisdom reminds us that while the gospel seems foolish to the non-believer, It is the wisdom of God to save whosoever will believe. Just think about Christmas. We're so used to Christmas and and the uh, the events and the story of Christmas that we don't think it's weird anymore that the creator of the universe would be virgin born in a manger. That's weird. It's very unusual. And yet the Bible says, no, this is the wisdom of God. This is how men are saved. And so remember that. We're to teach and admonish one another. Teaching is the presentation of truth. Admonishing is the application of truth by warning or correction or exhortation. I found what Paul said next curious. He put all this in the context of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You'd think he would have said that teaching and admonishing were to be accomplished by expository teaching. In fact, if I was at some seminar and they said, hey, how should we teach and exhort one another? What's the best way? I'd raise my hand and say, verse by verse teaching through the Bible, expository teaching. If Paul was there, he'd say, no, I have an idea. Why don't you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord? That sounds like a musical. Who likes musicals? I actually do. But Paul isn't describing a church service. He's describing how the church serves. The elect, holy, beloved members who comprise the church on earth should go about edifying one another and evangelizing the lost as if we were in a masterpiece of a musical, that we each had our place, whether we were actors or uh, you know, stagehands or musicians or whatever, that there's a great musical, a joyous production of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we all have a part to play in. And as we've seen this morning, we have wardrobe choices to make in that part. We want to make the right choices. Many of you have seen or you're going to see The Lion King up in Fresno. I haven't, but I've seen scenes from it. The wardrobes are amazing. It's just fantastic. Just know that right now as a Christian, your wardrobe is more fantastic than anything anybody will ever put on because you are putting on Jesus Christ. When you put on these traits and other things that we know about the Lord, you are beautiful and you are playing your part just as scripted.